Those of you who are friends of the Book Arts Press, which is most of you who are not in one position of serfdom or another to this great university, uh, should have received on Friday or over the weekend in any event an invitation to the Malkin Lecture on the 15th of December, the latest Friends of the Book Arts Press newsletter, and the exhibition catalog to the exhibition downstairs, which will be up uh, celebrating the 10th anniversary of the founding of the Friends of the Book Arts Press until the middle of December. We spent Tuesday and Wednesday of last week and also Friday and Saturday and Sunday videotaping how to operate a book with Gary Frost. Peter Herdrick is next door at this moment editing it. And we do indeed expect to have a very substantial rough cut of the entire videotape to show you next Monday. And we will be showing that both at 6 o'clock or a little thereafter and at 7 o'clock and a little thereafter and I think at 8 o'clock and a little thereafter as well. Showing it also with, at uh, those times, the videotape of the silver sale at Sotheby's, which is about 10 minutes long. We'll probably do that in this room and then just keep an open bar going in the press room. So that's the light for next week. The Malkin Lecture, of course, is at 6 o'clock on Monday the 15th of December next door. Barney Rosenthal speaking on the gentle invasion, the impact of the immigration of German and Austrian booksellers in the 1930s on the American antiquarian book trade. It's our great pleasure to have lecturing to us tonight Edwin Wolf, no stranger to these shores, on 19th century American embossed book bindings. Edwin Wolf. Thank you. Uh, I want to explain at the very beginning that this is a work in progress. I have not finished it, and so uh, some of my conclusions may not be fine drawn. Uh, I do think it represents something that uh, I'm not sure is taught in library schools, and that is that it's always a wonderful idea to take up a field that nobody else ever has. And that's just exactly how I got into uh, American embossed bindings. The library company, of which I was formerly the librarian, got a handful of them in a gift in 1977. And uh, stimulated by that, since I always wrote a report, I started looking up uh, embossed bindings. And I found nothing, and I mean nothing, written about American embossed bindings. There is an excellent work, small, on uh, English embossed bindings that mentions in about three sentences there are also American ones. And that's about it. Then I was struck by the fact that, um, looking back, the greatest collector of bindings in this country in this century, Esmerian, had as in his collection very, very few, if any, American bindings other 
than embossed bindings. And it, they were shown by him in the famous Baltimore binding show and then sold at his remarkable sale in Paris. The fact that Esmerian bought embossed bindings is perhaps the most important reason that I can consider them good because there was no greater connoisseur, amateur de leave, than uh, Esmerian. So I will begin this thing, the, I'll apologize for the slides. Uh, They were made in the library company. I'm pushing down. There we are. Good enough. This is uh, where we start. First, I have to explain there is vast confusion. And if you look at the literature and the terms used, in the literature of books and bindings, you'll find that uh, vastly, vastly uh, misleading. Embossing, what I am talking about, means that there was a plate made, a metal plate made, and engraved. Most bindings are decorated with by stamping. A stamp is made like a woodcut. The design comes out from the uh, metal. Embossing is made like an engraving. The uh, metal has, is the, the lines are below the surface and are brought up under pressure to be in cameo uh, on the book. That is an example of a 16th century French binding. Both are shown here. This center panel, just the center panel, was an engraved plate, and that is embossed. These are rolls and are not engraved. They are uh, they are stamped or uh, carved into the wood, I mean into the metal. Uh, now, the earliest American bindings were of two kinds. You will see in the middle there that there is a plaque, a metal plaque. This is fine. That's the metal plaque. These lines are also part of it. Now, around the outside is gilt stamping. That's actually a gilt roll and is pressed into the leather. This design is pulled out of the leather. That is a... Uh, in addition to Byron's works done in Philadelphia in 1826. The most of the leather used 
was Morocco. But early on, it was done with, this is probably Rhone. The pressure that was used makes it terribly difficult to tell what the original skin was because all the grain was pressed out of it. And I must say that I judge chiefly by the depth of the uh, impression and feel that the Morocco took a much better uh, push than the uh, Rhone did. Rhone, as you know, is half a piece of, or a piece of sheepskin sliced in half. This is one of the more sophisticated early bindings by a uh, publisher named Andrus in Hartford. This actually is Young's Night Thoughts, uh, printed in 1824. The plaque in this instance is rather more sophisticated than most of the very early ones. You will notice that the spine has uh, regular stamp decoration conformable to the general styles of the 1820s and 1830s. Uh, it was said that the whole business of embossing came to England in the mid-1820s as a result of a German coming to the binding firm of Remnant and Edmonds and saying, would you bind this in an embossed binding for me? Well, they found out how to do it and then went on from there. Remnant and Edmonds was the best and largest binder in England who did embossed bindings. They had a workman named Barrett who had learned how to do it, and he left and set up his own thing. I think we'll see some of their bindings. There was in England a style of stamped bindings called cathedral bindings, where you can see this is not a cathedral, it's a Gothic window, but it's generally called cathedral style. This was used in both England and America quite early. This is also a, um, an endless binding. If somebody wants to do some work and find out a good deal about that firm, they were original, they were energetic, they did all kinds of things, and I know very, very little about them, except that we may assume that since Hartford had a lot of metal workers, it was not difficult to get somebody to make an engraving like that. Now, you'll notice that this is a calf binding rather than a Morocco binding, such as you'll see later. Uh, this is another uh, cathedral binding with a very elaborate stamp border around the plaque and a uh, very elaborate back. It's interesting, this has Daniel Webster's name and was his copy of a book of common prayer, a psalm book rather, uh, which was published in Boston in 1825. 
uh, in a private collection, I have found this same binding with somebody else's name at the top. So presumably, the Boston binder who did these uh, produced these as deluxe bindings that were personalized. That is another Gothic binding, this time on the Atlantic Souvenir for 1827. Uh, the Atlantic Souvenir was the first of the annuals or gift books. These were books that, uh, again, they started in England and were uh, exported over here, copied here, and it became a major uh, sales promotion or for uh, various publishing houses. The books consisted of poems, short stories, and engravings. And much was made of the engravings, and some of the short stories were very good, including the first appearance of some of Poe's. Most of the engravings are very bad, but uh, they liked them in the 1820s, 30s, and 40s. And you will find that most of the uh, early uh, gift books from 1820, this one would be 1827, from 1827 through the mid-1850s, that most of them are Im embossed bindings. Thereafter, they, came, they were bound in uh, gilt stamp bindings. Uh, this is an interesting thing. The Atlantic Souvenir was sold to uh, Goodrich of Boston. It was published by Carey and Lee in Philadelphia first, then sold to uh, Goodrich and uh, Boston and combined with his token. Uh, this is not a very good slide, I'm afraid. But you can see, again, it's got a Gothic window and an angel in the medallion in the middle. It's uh, the poems of one Robert Pollock, published in New York by Charles Wells in 1831. Until 1832, uh, uh, Wells was listed in the New York directories as a binder. He was the publisher of this, mind you. But I also think he bound it. And uh, he then became a bookseller after 1832. And in 1838 was listed as a publisher. Uh, I also believe that he imported uh, bindings from England, uh, in, not bindings, plaques. You understand that each of these was a metal plaque, a single metal plaque, and was pressed under very, very high pressure by a fly stamping press, a fly embossing press. They had, before this, arming presses, which took a, well, they were named for armorials, or coats of arms, that were uh, stamped on bindings quite early. And they didn't need a tremendous amount of pressure to get the uh, 
lines that stood out from the block or stamp uh, into the leather to pull this out and you can see it's in relief to pull this out from the engraving took a great deal of pressure and they had these huge presses which came into being huge presses came into being in the 1830s one used in London was said to have developed a pressure of 60 tons and they are very large required two men to operate them and could not have been used except in large binderies that did a good deal of um, annual or gift book edition binding. Uh, this is a rubbing of, I guess I have to try and see what I do Yeah, This is a rubbing of uh, design Trinity Church, Boston. It was bound, you can see up at the top there, bound by C.A. Wells of Boston. I have not find, found out whether there's any connection between Charles Wells, the binder and publisher of New York, and C.A. Wells, Charles A. Wells, who was a Boston binder from the 1830s on. This is also signed down here by Gobrecht. Uh, Christian Gobrecht is probably the most famous uh, person connected with embossed bindings. He was laureated by inclusion in the Dictionary of American Biography because he was an inventor and engraver. Uh, he came to Philadelphia and worked for a banknote firm in 1826, made designs and dies for the United States Mint. He is said in his biography to have made the embossed bindings in, from 1831 that were used in the token in Boston. And you'll see some of those later. In other words, he was hired by the Boston binder to make the plate that uh, was used to get that design on the cover. Uh, he became, he stopped making bindings when he became uh, the assistant engraver to the United States Mint in 1836 and uh, became chief engraver to the Mint in 1840. Uh, he is one of the two best uh, American engravers of embossed plates. Uh, this is of a quality equal to the cathedral embossed bindings done in London. This is another American embossed binding. This is Trinity Church, New York. Uh, one of these books was, I don't know where it is, at, uh, yes, at, well, I'm not sure where it is at the moment. Uh, this is a book of common prayer. It was, uh, one of them was in the Esmerian sale. 
I don't know where that went to. Another one is at the American Antiquarian Society. You can see it's a very grand uh, design. It was done by a man named Bale in New York, James Bale, who as early as 1832 formed a uh, company, Bale and Smith, who were engravers and dye sinkers. Now you know what a, a dye is. If you look at any coin that you have in your pocket, you'll see that the design stands up just as that design stands up. It was made with a uh, stamp that was engraved. And when you, well, they made two of them for coins, one for each size. And the piece of metal was put between the two and stamped. And the die, uh, the engraving, is what made the design. So that people who had been die sinkers became quite naturally the makers of plaques for embossed bindings. Now there was another style that came into being. Uh, you can probably see this. It was made, it was machined. Uh, a machine was invented in the uh, 1820s for uh, making designs on banknotes to prevent their being counterfeited. And it was an eccentric lathe that I'm sure you've seen these as children's toys. You make all kinds of circles within circles and uh, that's just exactly what was done with this. And there are a whole ba batch of bindings like that that were uh, done for, by embossing, by engraving in a plate. Uh, this was on the Atlantic Souvenir for 1831 and 32. Uh, in, uh, it was introduced, actually, the machine was introduced from Germany into England in 1820. And two years later, uh, there's a notice of an American patent for one of these called a geometrical lathe. Uh, this That's a better picture and you get a better idea. Now I want you to look at the center of that quite carefully. This is on a set of prayer books, Sephardic prayer books, that were printed in Philadelphia in 1837 for the use of the uh, old congregation, Mikveh Israel. And it, it, it's, it's a rather handsome one in black Morocco. Now, look at this. That is on another binding and is actually a piece from the middle of the larger binding. In other words, these could be layered up. We have another one in even smaller binding. It consists only of that, which means in the bigger binding, I'm going back again. In the bigger binding, you have a series. This is one piece of metal. 
this is another piece of metal, and this interior is a third piece of metal. And they fit together to make that and can be taken apart to be used on separate uh, smaller books. Uh, this was done quite frequently. There's another one on a, a small book, and you can see that rather better than the uh, other ones. That's on uh, the bouquet, uh, Philadelphia, 1840. The bouquet was a, a gift annual. That is the Atlantic souvenir for 1832 and uh, shows one of the styles that was used later. Now, the, they came in various colors. I found embossed bindings, mostly in black, a good many like this in shades of red from bright crimson to very deep maroon in dark purple, in brown, and very rarely, but sometimes in green. And as I said before, the uh, skins used were Morocco. You see, that's quite deep. So I believe that that's a Morocco skin. That's, uh, as I told you, on the Atlantic souvenir for 1832. This is what I call an arabesque. Uh, some of the others, such as the earlier one that you just saw, uh, has been called an arabesque, but uh, I just call it fancy floral and foliage. That looks to me to have some kind of a Near Eastern flavor. It may be in the eye of the beholder, but I consider that, that to be an arabesque there are a good many that were strap work, you see this kind of work, that uh, appeared on bindings. This is on Whittier's poems, Philadelphia, 1838, but was used as early as 1833 by Carrie Lee and Blanchard in Philadelphia. Now this is an interesting uh, thing. This is a binding, this is a rubbing, of a binding by Barrett uh, and Company of London. It's signed down here, you can't see it, but it, believe me, it's there. Uh, it was on a book, Colton's Lacon, printed in New York by Charles Wells, whom I mentioned before, or published by Charles Wells, in 1836. And I find it very difficult to believe that they would have shipped a New York printed Lacon over to England to be bound when there were copies of the book in England itself. Uh, I believe, and I have proof of only one, I believe this uh, plaque itself was exported from England to America. Now frequently, you can see that's almost the same thing, almost identical. 
It's on the jam printed in Philadelphia in 1840. Uh, it was copied. A great many of the English bindings on uh, gift books were actually copied. This is not the same plaque as was on this one. Oh, whoop, gotta go back. On this one, it's a different plaque, but very, very much the same. You can see the strap work design on this. There were a series of maps, uh, a good many of them by Mitchell, published by a firm named Copperthwaite in uh, Philadelphia in the 18, late 1830s through the 1840s. You will notice that the designs on the two sides differ. They are not identical. This is unusual. I have only one other binding in which the sides uh, are not the same. Usually the side, the same plaque is used on the front cover and the back cover. I didn't mention, but I should have. In order to do these, the skin goes through the press three times. The skin is embossed before it's attached to the covers of the book. Uh, we have a full description of how this was done in England. And so far, the ones I have seen give no evidence at all of having been put as cloth bindings were and as most stamp bindings after the book, the leather, has been put on the boards. Uh, this is a, this made it rather expensive and there was a, they did, they built up a frame uh, on the press so that the leather could be fitted in and hit the right place at the right time. Uh, first one side, do all one side, and then turn the uh, leather around, do the other side, and then do the back strip if the back strip is embossed. And about half the time, or maybe a little more, the back strip is embossed as well as the uh, covers. This is on uh, Union Annual for 1837, and it's signed Gaskell. Gaskell was a Philadelphia bookbinder from 1809 to 1856. There's a record in the Cary Papers at the Antiquarian Society that he bound the Lewis and Clark uh, expedition account in boards, and uh, he started doing embossed bindings in the 1830s. His son, Benjamin Jr., uh, was an engraver and probably learned either from his father or from someone else how to make the uh, plaques. He stayed with his father until 1837. Then he founded Gaskell and Copper in 1838 
they were bookbinders, tool cutters, and engravers, and advertised themselves as successors to M.W. Baldwin. M.W. Baldwin happens to be Matthias Baldwin, who turned from engraving metal to making locomotives. Uh, in 1840, Edward Gaskell joined his father as a binder, and in 1852, the firm of Gaskell and Copper became Gaskell, Copper, and Fry. And it is recorded in a history of American industries that they supplied most of the binders' tools and such like for binders in Boston, New York, and Philadelphia, which seems logical because, if you remember, I said the same kind of work to make these plaques was the work done making coins and medals. And the United States Mint was in Philadelphia. And consequently, the know-how was in that town. And I believe a great many of the plaques not bearing Gaskell's name necessarily, were bought by other binders through the firm of uh, Gaskell and Copper and then Gaskell, Copper and Fry, and used by them. Uh, this is one of those instances where you, you have really too little uh, too little information and uh, in, in, unfortunately for me, in the Carey papers at the Historical Society, the correspondence and the records have a gap during the prime period of uh, the embossed bindings. This is uh, on the Violet, another annual for 1837, Philadelphia by Carey and Hart. Now, the uh, spine on this is uh, the same as others. This is signed by Gaskell, incidentally. The spine on this is the same as others that are not signed by Gaskell, but I assume that if the spine of a Gaskell signed binding is on another book, it means that the plates were all made by Gaskell. This is an amazing book. This is, a, I'm sorry, I don't have a picture of it. This is by Andrus, and it was done in 1843. It's a New Testament. Andrus is the only person who embossed with a gilt brown. This ground is gilt. It's not very successful when you look at the book. But it's an interesting idea. As I said, I wish I knew more about the uh, Andruses. Silas Andrus worked in the 1830s. William Andrus and Cyrus Andrus and Sons in the 1840s. I find nothing in the, the 1830s. 1820 they started. I find no 1830 books bound... Uh, published by Andrus with an embossed binding. And then again, these rather interesting ones with gilt uh, backgrounds in the 1840s. 
This is the uh, canary bird, Philadelphia, 1837. And this is uh, a later one. This is the uh, a manual of legislative practice in Philadelphia in 1850. Uh, you can see, I, I do think that's sort of oriental in origin, but other people may disagree with me. There was a series of these made, Rose of Sharon. Uh, you see, it's got an embossed uh, surround here. This was left blank when the plate was made, and a rose was gilt stamped on that. Now, there's similar bindings for the Mayflower, the Moss Rose, and the Lily of the Valley. This style that I call foliate and floriate is the commonest style of all embossed bindings. There were a number that were done with circular medallions. This is a Bible done in Philadelphia, printed in Philadelphia in 1829 in a remnant and Edmonds. Remember, they were the most famous and largest of the London binders. This is signed remnant and Edmonds. Again, I find it difficult to believe that a Bible would be shipped over to England, a Philadelphia printed Bible, to be bound in England when there were plenty of English Bibles easily available there. And I think, again, that this plate, this plaque, may have been exported. Uh, I must say one thing, too. The fact that this was covered, an 1829 book, does not mean that the plaque was made in 1829. As a matter of fact, I think this is somewhat later and was done in the middle 1830s sometime. Uh, it only, in the early ones, I have a feeling that um, the date of the book itself is pretty close to the date of the binding. It's obvious that in the gift books, the date of the binding has to be that of the gift book or annual. Uh, this is an interesting one. This is on Friendship's Offering uh, for uh, 1832. It was published in London by Smith and Elder. And it has on here, this says Friendship's Offering up there. And it says Smith and Elder down there. Uh, there were editions of this. In 1832, it said Smith and Elder and uh, a Philadelphia binder. In, from 1832 on, it said Smith and Elder and William Jackson of New York. In other words, uh, these were bound in England and sent over uh, as a uh, unit by Smith and Elder. That is not the Smith and Elder binding. That is an exact copy of Friendship's Offering for 1841 in Philadelphia, later moved to uh, Boston. 
the uh, the annual was later moved to Boston. This has friendships offering up here. And down here, it has uh, Alexander C. Morin, who was the uh, engraver who did more work than any other single person we know. There are more bindings signed by him than any other person. As you can see, he made a pretty good copy of the English binding. There's the English binding, and the harp, of course, is stamped in gilt. There's the English one, there's the American one. Then we went on, and the center part, you can barely see up here, Friendship's Offering has been scraped off, and this no longer covers Friendship's Offering, but a New Testament printed at Philadelphia in 1825. The centerpiece here is Morin's plaque that's set into another frame. And you see again how the pieces were put together and also you see how a uh, plaque was reused. This is the daughter's own book of Boston, 1833. It's interesting because this centerpiece exists in a cast in the Historical Society of Pennsylvania, which shows that the center here was an advertisement for Gobrecht, the engraver. Uh, he used this for an engraved uh, trade card. He scraped out the name Gobrecht engraver with his address from here there and used it on a book. Uh, incidentally, we have Lafayette in Washington down there, which uh, is a pretty fancy one. He was, uh, Gobrecht was a remarkably fine engraver. This is another one of the engravings that I believe Gobrecht did. It's the Lily for 1835. It's New York. Uh, it was also used for the token for 1833 in Boston, uh, in a Boston binding by C.A. Wells. We have a record, uh, merely a sum of money, that Wells paid Gobrecht so that we believe that this uh, plaque, again made up of several parts because it exists in a number of ways, uh, that the plaques were ordered by the Boston binder from the Philadelphia engraver. This is, I think, one of the loveliest uh, of more uh, Venus Anadiomene. It's one of a series of this, you can't see, th there are two lovers here. It's the same kind of uh, binding. 
This is on uh, the token for 1832. Uh, if you remember in, I said when I was talking about Gobrecht, that he made uh, the bindings, or is said to have made the bindings from 1832 to 1836 on the token. And this is the token. You'll notice that the outside border is very similar. Here's another of the series, The Dancing Girl. This is signed, actually signed, down here by Gobrecht, so, which bears out the fact that uh, um, he did all the ones that have center panels with figures like that. This is the token for 1842. It, uh, it's in a um, binding by the second largest or maybe the largest Boston uh, binder, Benjamin Bradley. It is signed by him. The, uh, it's also signed by Morin in there. Uh, you can see this is Boston. Here is uh, a symbol, Liberty Cap and all that, and here's a picture of Boston. Uh, Bradley set up shop in Boston in 1832 and was a bookbinder there for uh, over 20 years. Uh, he also had tickets, binders tickets, in his book and a little embossed stamp, which is sometimes very, very hard to see. Now, this is exactly the same binding with a different centerpiece. Boston, emblematic Boston, is gone, and we have the... Uh, Amarini in there instead. But everything else, mind you, all the outside is uh, the same as the other uh, binding. That's the Rose of Sharon for 1848. This is one of the most popular of all the covers. 